Our first reading is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 34. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad. Because he was a man of great wealth. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, well, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. And the disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. Thanks be to God for his word. What can you give the man who has everything? What could he possibly need or want when everything is his already? This man who met Jesus had everything, wealth, Youth, success, the high status of a ruler, the respect of everybody, a morally upright way of life. He had everything he could want, he'd achieved everything he could want to achieve, and he was still a young man. He'd made it at an early stage in his life. The one thing he wasn't sure about, seemingly, was assurance about the next life. He had everything here and now, but what he wanted to to be sure about, to confident about, to know that he was going to be okay for, is the life to come. What must I do, he says to Jesus, to inherit eternal life? 
that could suggest a degree of disquiet on his part about that particular subject. Not quite sure of his salvation. Or maybe he only approached Jesus because he wanted an intellectual discussion. He wanted to have a chance to engage with this famous teacher so that he could say, I had this chat with Jesus the other day and this is what he said and I think he's a good bloke and he thought I was all right as well. Either way, the answer that Jesus gives the man is equally disconcerting. The man who has everything is told there's one thing he doesn't have. His problem is he's got too much. If you're serious about getting eternal life, Jesus says, sell it all. Distribute the proceeds among the poor. Leave all that behind and come and follow me. It's not the answer he wanted or expected to hear. He was deeply upset and disturbed by it. And it would be true to say that Jesus' answer has proved to be equally upsetting for people from that day to this. In response, the disciples wonder, well, who on earth can be saved if that's the case? If that's what you've got to do. If it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, what hope is there for anybody? And Jesus admits, humanly speaking, this is impossible. Only God has the power to save a rich person. Bit of a truism, really. Because actually, only God can save a poor person as well. The only way any one of us could be saved is by God's sovereign grace. No one gets to heaven because they deserve to be there or makes it under their own steam. You can't pay your way to get in. Barclay card doesn't do the job. Nor does American Express, not even Diners Club. Without the grace of God, no one would be saved at all. Yet Jesus does seem to say, it's especially hard for rich people, you know. So what are we to make of his command to this young man? If you want to inherit eternal life, what you've got to do is to sell what you've got and give it all away. If we're serious about our faith, we will have read the Gospels. And we will have read the story of this encounter in Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's there three times. And if we're serious about our faith, we will have pondered that verse and considered its meaning and wondered, you know, okay, that's what Jesus said to that particular young man, but but what is Jesus saying to me? And does it make sense? If I sell everything I have and and give it away to poor people, that just makes me a poor person as well, doesn't it? Where's Where's the logic or sense in that? And if I, if I give the proceeds of, of what I have to poor people and they squander it, surely that's just a waste. Isn't it better if I kind of use what I have wisely and carefully so that I don't end up being dependent on the charity of others? Those thoughts have kind of meandered through my mind over the years and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. It's hard to make sense of what Jesus says here. Over the years, people have thought up ways of trying to minimise the impact of Jesus' words. So maybe, just maybe, there was a, a tiny gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. 
And a camel could only get through it if you took all the, the baggage off the camel and then the camel could just squeeze through very, very carefully, but the space was very tight. It's an ingenious and comforting idea, but totally lacking in evidence. You have to dream up the idea that there was a gate with that name. Or maybe Jesus wasn't talking about camels at all. Because the word for camel, camelos, sounds a lot like the word for cable, camelos, and they may even have been pronounced the same way. So, you know, perhaps it's a length of cable getting through the eye of a needle. And if you, if you pick the cable apart into its individual threads, you can pass it through the needle very painstakingly, and it takes an enormous amount of time, but it can be done. You can get a cable through the eye of a needle very, very slowly. Yet we know that Jesus did talk quite a bit about camels. He was into camel jokes. And, and one of the points he's making, surely, is that this is, this is the largest animal known in that part of the world. And this is the smallest aperture. We were laying about apertures this afternoon, Sean. The smallest aperture known to them in the ancient world. The biggest animal. How does that get through the smallest hole? The point is, it's impossible. If it wasn't impossible, the disciples wouldn't say, well, you know, who can be saved then in that case? The point is the sheer impossibility of getting the largest known animal through the smallest known aperture. The image is designed to be incongruous. And if there have been Christians who've tried to, to find ways of minimising the impact of Jesus' words and get round them in some way, there are equally groups of Christians who have taken Jesus' words literally. And have had a little time for rich Christians who try to avoid the impact of what he says by watering down their sense or finding ways of explaining what Jesus meant away. There are people who have followed Jesus' command to sell what they have and give it to the poor and dedicate their lives to living for him in poverty. Francis of Assisi being the most famous example. And of course there's no denying, is there, that the more possessions you have the harder it is to contemplate giving them all up. And so the truth of what Jesus says actually hits you quite hard from that point of view. Not for the first time in this section of Luke's Gospel, Jesus' words can have a very unsettling effect indeed on those of us who wish to follow him. Are the demands he places upon those who wish to follow him simply too difficult? And what am I to do as a preacher? If I try and make sense of Jesus' words, so we don't have to take them at face value, if I negotiate a way round them for us all, am I simply taking the sting and the challenge out of what Jesus says so that we can, we can continue our comfortable lifestyle quite happily and, and complacently without needing to bother about this awkward passage? Is it my job to make people comfortable like that? Whereas in actual fact, the authentic Jesus was a radical who spent his time challenging, unsettling, disturbing, upsetting people dreadfully. Charismatic character. People flocked to hear him, but what he says was controversial. It was upsetting. 
And if you were to leave church tonight thinking, ah, I understand it now. Tim's explained all that difficult stuff away for me. We don't need to set our possessions and give it to the poor. I don't need to do anything. I might have made you happy. But have I failed Jesus in some kind of way? And yet, I get the feeling that if I said you all had to go away and sell what you had to give it to the poor, either you'd ignore me, or you'd find another church, or, yeah, I don't know. So I don't want to try and dig a little bit deeper into what Jesus might have meant and why he responded to the ruler in this particular way. And I want, perhaps bizarrely, to think about what Jesus didn't say. Because he reels off a list of commandments to the ruler, who's able to assert with complete confidence that he's kept all these since he was a boy. And I believe him. But which commandment is missing? Which commandment should, if the man were honest, have given him pause? Jesus lists five of the Ten Commandments, which in their original order run, honour your parents, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. These are commandments five, six, seven, eight, nine, respectively. And they all deal with what it means for us to love our neighbour as ourselves. The one that's missing is the one at the end, number 10. Jesus has the one about honouring your parents last. But the last of the Ten Commandments is the one that says, you shall not covet. Not your neighbour's house, your neighbour's wife, your neighbour's servant, your neighbour's animal, or anything else that belongs to your neighbour. Now, if Jesus had included that one in his list, could the rich young man still have said, I've done all that since I was a boy? I don't know. But I wonder. He may have lived a life entirely free of the desire of material possessions. He may have been completely content with what he had. But I wonder about the extent to which he had all that he had because he'd worked hard to accumulate all that wealth, because he wanted to have what he saw other people having and live the life he saw other people living. To what extent was he able to refrain from coveting what other people had only because He'd worked hard to make sure he had more than enough himself so he didn't need to cover what other people had. But if he went without, would he be able to have been coped with seeing other people better off than him? And besides, there is something quite insidious about money and material possessions that means that the more you have, the more you want. And clearly his inability to respond to Jesus' words, sell what you have and give it away, by simply... Shrugging his shoulders, selling it all, giving the proceeds away, suggests that there was actually a fairly deep-rooted desire for wealth and possessions and comfort and prosperity in his heart. Maybe Jesus said this because his desire for material prosperity was stronger than his desire for eternal life. And that's what Jesus puts his finger on with his radical challenge. 
does having our desires enmeshed in the material things of this world mean that we find it so difficult to leave them behind that we can't truly and readily embrace the eternal life of the world to come? Can we become so bogged down here with what we have that we can't face the prospect easily of giving up for what is to come? If that's what we need to do. And then there's that little discussion that he and Jesus have when they first meet about goodness. Good teacher, the guy says. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus picks it up straight away on that word good. Why are you calling me good, Jesus says. No one's good except God alone. As I pondered this, I was, I was drawn to look up goodness in the dictionary. It's where we use all the time, but what's it mean? And the first definition of good in the Chambers Dictionary is having suitable or desirable qualities. I wasn't sure about that. Had to stop and think. To what extent is goodness to be equated with desirability? Is something good because I want it? Do I want something because it's good? If I'm honest, there are times when I want things that aren't good at all. And is it possible for something to be good if nobody wants it? You could say that that's something that's intrinsically good, then. It's good because it's not a benefit to anybody else. It's good in and of itself, whether people are aware of it or not. But can something be good if nobody wants it? I suppose health foods are a bit like that. Nobody wants them, but they're good for you. And just because something's good, that doesn't mean to say, I'm going to want it, or I'm going to desire it, particularly. God can be a bit like that, if we're honest. God is good, by definition. If God were not good, he would not be God, worthy of our worship. God remains fundamentally good whether we desire God or not. Whether we believe in God or not, God is there and he is good. And so if I recognise that God is good, surely that means that I should desire God because he's good, doesn't it? Yes, it does, in theory. If we recognise the, the full unalloyed extent of God's goodness. That should lead us surely to desire God with all our hearts as the greatest good we could possibly recognise or own. If we recognise that God is truly good, intrinsically good, exclusively good, doesn't that mean that we should desire the goodness of God before everything else? In theory, yes, of course it does. Because we, we want to be people who set our hearts on goodness. But in practice, does it work in practice? Do we desire God first and foremost because he is good above all other? Or are our desires focused in other directions, towards things that are not bad in themselves, but to lesser goods? And are our desires focused on what is good? Or, 
Or do we desire things really that we can use for our own selfish purposes and enjoyment? Are our desires lifted up to recognise and embrace what is good because it's his good? Or are are our desires debased because we allow ourselves to be drawn to things that have no intrinsic goodness at all? Unlike God, material things have no intrinsic goodness. There is nothing intrinsically good or bad about money, possessions. Yet how much do we set our hearts on these instead of or over and above God who is the source of all goodness? God is good, yes. But are there things that we regard as being better? But of us would recoil from that. Nothing can be better with God. Let me rephrase that. God is good, yes, but are there things we want more than God? In our hearts, if we're honest. St Augustine pondered this question at some length. He said that at root, human beings are lovers. We are fundamentally creatures of desire. God created us to love him with all our being and to set our hearts on him because he is the only one who can fully satisfy that desire for himself that he's placed within us. You know the quotation, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Yet perversely, we always turn aside from God to lesser things. That desire that God placed within us so that we should reach out to God as the fundamental source of goodness, that desire we, we, we direct towards things that are not God. They're not bad in themselves. They're just lesser things. But if we set our hearts on things that are not God and we make them the be-all and end-all of our lives then they come between us and God. They lead us away from God. And it's this abandonment of the ultimate good for a lesser good. It's this misplaced focus and love for what is not God that is the essence of sin, that is the core of idolatry, the desire placed within us by God for God we direct to other things. And the other things which are not bad in and of themselves lead us away from God. So maybe at its root in this encounter between Jesus and the rich man is the question about whether he desires what is good or not. Given a choice between God and wealth, When it came down to it, his choice was wealth. Not that wealth was bad, but it was first. And that was his problem. The lesser goodness of material goods came above God in his heart. And even if he wasn't actively engaged at that moment in actively coveting his neighbour's houses and possessions while he had his wealth, 
He couldn't face the prospect of going without his nice house and his servants and his luxuries and living a life without all that while his neighbours were still living in luxury in their nice houses, being waited on by their servants. He couldn't cope with that reduction in his status, going without while others had. Couldn't bring himself to do it. He would not have been able to give up what he had without coveting what he did not have as a result of losing what he had. His desires were not directed at God. They were focused primarily on material things. And that may be precisely why Jesus issued him with a challenge that he did. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. What do you really want? What do you set your heart on? What is your ultimate desire? What is the priority in how you live your life? So perhaps I can send you home without feeling guilty because you haven't sold everything you have and given it away to the poor. You can breathe a sigh of relief in that respect. But Jesus leaves us with a deeper challenge. If God is good, the ultimate goodness, our heart's desire should be set on him before everything else. He should be the goal and the aim and the purpose of our lives. And the more we recognise his goodness, the more it should be in our hearts to desire him and reach out to him and worship him and serve him. Don't set your heart on material things because the love of money is the root of all evil. But if you believe that God is good, make him the centre of your desires. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all you have, with all you want. That's the challenge. How we work that out in practice is down to each one of us. But it's a question of our priorities, of our loyalties, of what we really, really want deep down in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we've celebrated your goodness and we thank you that you are good. You are the best. Forgive us, Lord, that so often we direct our desires to other things. To lesser goods. Forgive us for all those things that pull us away from you that take your place. Plant within us the ability to recognise your goodness and the desire to put you first, 
to live our lives for you and make you the goal and aim and purpose of our lives. If being good is essentially something that is desirable, give us a desire for you before all other things. Take first place in our hearts, in our priorities, in our ambitions. Consume us with your goodness, Lord, that we might live our lives for you. That we might live this life for you and share eternal life with you in the life to come. Amen.